And welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. This is a podcast about general medicine and today we're going to discuss an interesting case. Prior to this recording, me and Hussein have not discussed anything because I don't want to give him any hints or tips. Now, this episode is looking at a case that I was involved in last year. Um, as a very new consultant and it stayed with me for many many reasons and we're going to discuss some of those today. Um, It was a Wednesday afternoon and I was a consultant on call. It was 10 to 4 and I was due to finish work and as is always the case a junior doctor came up to me and said oh I've just got one more to post take. Absolutely no problem. Walked into recess. Now the last patient I saw that day will be a patient that probably stays with me for the rest of my life. He was a 34-year-old male. He was currently a prisoner. He complained of a three-day history of shortness of breath and a cough. He was very hot and sweaty and had also had some generalised chest pain. He said he'd had six to seven episodes of coughing up blood. He couldn't sleep and had noticed blood in his urine. Generally... He felt awful, and I have to say he looked pretty bad as well. He'd been diagnosed with a DVT three days previously and started on low molecular weight heparin while still in prison. He had a significant past medical history. He had a very high alcohol intake. He smoked 50 to 60 cigarettes a day. He was or had been an intravenous drug user and was currently on a methadone programme. And when he came to hospital, he was on diazepam, thiamine, vitamin B, low molecular weight heparin for the DVT and methadone. Apart from that, nothing else really of note. He he didn't really know much about his family history and went on to examine him. He looked ill. He looked really unwell from the end of the bed. He had widespread bruising on his hands, fingertips. His blood pressure was 110 over 70 tachycardic at 110 beats per minute. He had a respirator of 30, sats of 90% on air and a temperature of 38 degrees. Examination of his chest, he had creps or crepitations at the left base and his liver was enlarged and quite tender and his right leg was very swollen. Couldn't really see any bruising and at the time examination of his heart was normal. What are your thoughts? Um, so he sounds very, very sick. Yeah, he was really ill and he just looked in a bad... You know, you look at the end of the bed yeah. and you say, is this patient well or unwell? He was really sick. Yeah, I, think- I was very worried. Yeah, you've, you've painted a picture there where you, you don't actually need the observations. Yeah. Um, okay. But from the background, um, you know, he doesn't sound to be in the best of health anyway. You know, previous drug use, alcohol, smoker heavy smoker at that, um, you know, already on diazepam, methadone, you know, pretty strong acting drugs. Um, first thing, he sounds septic. Yeah. You know, he's um, probably got multi-organ failure as well. So if he's got blood in the urine, he's hypoxic, um, he's pyrexial. Um, yeah, not in a good way. And I think there's multiple sources. So the creps at the left base is this pneumonia. Um, the recent DVT swollen leg, has that now become infected? Um, is there something in his abdomen? So he's got a large liver. Is there an abscess there? Uh, is it just urinary, you know, given given the thing you said? It, but 
something something that needs prompt yeah action yeah and what about the fingertips being bruised and the again again i thought is is this a result of just really full-blown sepsis that he's actually got um a coagulopathy as well so something like disseminated um dic um or is it just exacerbated by the fact that he's on heparin i mean i know early on in our careers that kind of look fingertip bruising or is it mottled skin it's you know sometimes can be a little bit difficult to differentiate but um no it just sounds like overwhelming sepsis and um that's the line that i went down was overwhelming sepsis his crp was 232 so very high his platelet count was 10 yeah his hemoglobin was 124 urea of 22 at creatinine of 180 but his white cell count and neutral count was normal which threw me massively and his um alt was 260 but the rest of his liver function was normal so for some reason i was expecting his white cell count to be grossly abnormal but it it wasn't it was normal doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't septic it just wasn't fitting a pattern that i was used to i guess yeah um his chest x-ray showed um left lung pneumonia which would be consistent with his um, examination. Um, we also knew he had the DVT in his leg, and like you say, you'd be worried about, is this a PE? So what would you do? I have to say, I was there was so much going on. Yeah. You sort of have to go back to basics. Yeah, I think, so obviously the immediate management, you want to resuscitate him. So yeah. he's got already got an AKI. You want to get some fluids in, monitor his urine output. Um, you want to get some antibiotics into him that will cover most of the organisms that you may see in a gentleman like this. Um, you know, he's an IVDU, he's a smoker, yeah. you know, he's he's probably not got the best reserves. Um, or certainly not the best set of lungs either. Um, I, I think it's interesting, the white cell count, because the first thing I thought is that is he normally immunosuppressed? So you're thinking of HIV? Yeah, exactly. So I think whilst... Whilst I would want to get those drugs into him, you'd also want to make sure that you're doing an HIV test. Um, he's pyrexial, you know, do cultures from everywhere. Um, but also because he sounds so sick uh, and we've already got indicators that this is more than one organ affected, mm-hmm. um, I'd want to put him in, you know, a very high dependency setting. Yes, absolutely. That's the sort of thing that was going through my head. So... You're right, we did the A, B, C, D, E approach, fluids, antibiotics. Um, I felt that he really needed some HDU or intensive care unit support. Um, we did, we looked at his HIV status, did the hepatitis screen, thinking about TB, could it be fungal, could he have a PE? Uh, could this be septic emboli? Yeah. Um, given the fact that he's got a very high temperature and very sick DVT, IVDU, septic emboli is a possibility. So these things are all sort of going through my head. There was so much. Of course, and you, you mentioned he had some hemoptysis as well. And again, you think TB, but then you think, okay, if he's productive, then you've got to isolate him Absolutely. as well. Yeah. And then because he's, he's from prison, he's been... High huge, risk. High risk of TB. For that also, you need to think about if this is TB, you know, the contact tracing and how many people have been in contact. So it's huge. Huge ramifications, a big case. Um, And also, we needed to look for um, recreational drugs in his system as well. So, um, you know, I know that a lot of patients 
who we see from prison population still use drugs in prison. And that was a big surprise to me. Um, I didn't realise they were as readily available as they are, but they are. Um, so we did a looked for uh, medication in his system. We did a CT scan. Wanted to see whether he did have a blood clot and his lungs. We did a CTPA. So lots and lots of things. So much going on. Um, so you're right. At the time, was this disseminated into vascular coagulation? Was he septic? DVT? Um, I, w- I didn't want to try and focus on one condition causing everything. You know, there's so much going on. Did he have lots and lots of different conditions? Um, good old Hickam's dictum, which I really like, is that patients can have as many diseases as they damn well please. So, and I think what we try to do often is to try and focus on one diagnosis, but actually, there's a lot. So, I spoke to ITU. I felt out of my depth. I was a little bit disappointed that um, ITU came along, didn't really assess him, um, looked at his numbers, looked at him, he was quite young and said he didn't need ITU. So I then had to try and make a decision, okay, we don't have, it's not for ITU or HDU, then where do I put him? Um, Recognising that it was going to need a huge amount of um, nursing care and medical input. So we decided to put him in our acute medical unit. Yeah. Was he agitated? Yes, he was very agitated. Um, he was a little bit hypoxic, so I think that contributed to the agitation. He wouldn't keep his oxygen mask on, and he was withdrawing from drugs as well. So it was difficult to manage, and it's really hard when patients get really cross with you and really angry with you because you're trying to do the best, and they get rude, and they get obnoxious, and they can lash out at you. But actually, if they're unwell and they're hypoxic and they're septic, there's sometimes reasons as to why they're not functioning normally anyway. So it was really important in this case for me to treat this patient as I treat everybody else, which I do anyway, but I definitely saw in other people who I was working with that they did have a different attitude towards him. Yeah. I think it's it's a really important point. And it, you, you can't really teach about this until you're actually in that environment, but... Yeah, I've had similar experiences where you have someone who is just not cooperating, can be aggressive, can be very offensive. Yeah. And as the leads in, you know, the medicine, you know, leading the take, leading the ward, it's quite hard for you to make sure that everyone is still on board in giving this patient the best care in the face of such adversity and, and I think particularly of one profession which is the nursing staff who it's so hard what they have to they they can't walk away and see another patient they have to remain in that bay yeah. at all times and it's um yeah I I, I, I really feel <laughs> kind of the difficulties of this case it was difficult and I think it emphasized to me the importance of putting ourselves in the patient's position so what was he feeling yeah. he was really sick he had low oxygen levels he was infected he had blood clots he wasn't able to get the drugs that he was normally taking he was actually vulnerable as well yeah he's, he's probably feeling like he's dying and he looked like he was dying to be fair and he did say to me on many occasions i think i'm dying um and that was very telling because i thought he was too but i couldn't get anybody else to think that he was yeah. so um we did put this patient onto our admissions unit and he was treated for sepsis and uh, septic emboli and 
But, you know, we treated him for absolutely everything because he just looked so sick and it was difficult to try and get to the bottom of what was going on. And over the course of a week, we referred him many times to ITU and unfortunately they, they declined to take him on every occasion. So, because they said, you know, he was maintaining his own organs, which he was, but it was still very difficult for us to give him the care that we felt that he needed. So we eventually referred him um, for an echocardiogram, obviously septic emboli. We wanted to think about, okay, is this infective endocarditis? He's an intravenous drug user, he's a high risk. Although he had many signs of sepsis from elsewhere, this is always something that you have to think about in these type of patients. And lo and behold, his transthoracic echocardiogram revealed a very large vegetation on the aortic valve which would explain the septic emboli. It would explain the fever, the just generally looking awful. Yeah. Um, so what would you do? You've got confirmation yeah. on imaging. On imaging, that yeah. That he's got um, vegetation. So I would, if not already done, make sure that he's had blood cultures sent. Can you, do you know how many you have to take? And... Um, more than one. <laughs> yeah. um, I think you need you need to do at least two from at separate times. It's three. Three. Yeah. So there is actually a very good guideline out. Um, it's from the European Society of Cardiology. It was published in 2015, and that looks at the guidelines for the management of infective endocarditis. But it's also very good at looking at how we investigate for endocarditis. And they say that you need three blood cultures done at least. 10 minutes apart from different sites and you need at least 10 mil so the the more blood that you get obviously the better and they need to go in blood culture bottles and then they need to be sent to the lab quite challenging when you've got a patient who's completely shut down it's very hard and agitated yeah and trying to explain to them why you need to do the same blood test in 10 minutes somewhere else and i think again this makes that point that you've just raised is that we go in and do what we think we should be doing, but we very rarely, although we are starting to do it more often now, is think about the patient. And you're right, if you all keep going taking more and more blood cultures and they don't understand why, it can be really frustrating for them. Yeah. It looks very superficially like incompetence. <laughs> yes. You know, what have you done yeah. with the first the first two? But, um, but no, yeah, as you said, cultures, yeah. mandatory. So you need cultures. Um, speak to micro, maybe yes. cover, cover for... Um, endocarditis bacterial endocarditis mm-hmm. um i suppose you you'd also want to monitor cardiac function yeah. i mean it, again you don't you probably can't do an echo that frequently but just you know ecgs monitor heart rate blood pressure mm-hmm. um as you would do anyway yeah and um like you say when you when you're diagnosing your um, infective endocarditis you want to do an echo either transthoracic sometimes they're not as effective so patients will need transesophageal echocardiograms um, you have sets of blood cultures and then we can look at can you remember somewhere duke's criteria yes vaguely so i've heard of it and yeah. obviously we we learned it word for word in med school and yeah. for paces yeah and we know that 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 criteria sets out you know 
the, the diagnostics that we need for it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to recap it briefly because I think it's useful to people listening yeah. who are doing exams. So Duke's criteria, you've got your major criteria and your minor criteria. And your major criteria are positive blood cultures for infective endocarditis. And you need to have a typical microorganism from two separate blood culture bottles. Now, the typical organisms for infective endocarditis are Streptococcus viridans, Staphylococcus aureus, particularly in those patients who are intravenous drug users, Strep bovis, particularly in patients who have an underlying GI malignancy, and Enterococcus. Um, in those who have prosthetic heart valves, then you're thinking of coagulase negative staph, as well as staph aureus and enterococci. Um, so those are the sort of bugs that you're looking for. You also want evidence of endocardial involvement. So you may see an abscess. You may see a, a vegetation on the valve. You may see, if it's a prosthetic valve, dehiscence of that valve or new regurgitation. And then your minor criteria are predisposing heart condition or are they an intravenous drug user? Fever, more than 38. And then vascular phenomenon, such as um, arterial emboli, pulmonary infarcts, intracranial hemorrhages, Janeway lesions. You make, and then you've got your immunological phenomenon, so gamaronephritis, Osler's nodes, Roth spots, positive rheumatoid factor, echo might show signs suggestive of it. And then positive blood cultures, but those not meeting the major criteria, so you may have one positive. Now, you must meet two major criteria or one major and three minor criteria or five minor criteria for a diagnosis of endocarditis. Yeah, quite quite complex when you're there. It's really complex. Yeah. Interesting you mentioned intracranial hemorrhage there. So agitated guy, septic emboli. Uh, did you say his platelets were 10? Yeah, so something to think about. Scan his head. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely. And his head was scanned at some point um he didn't have a hemorrhage but you've raised a really good point actually that's definitely something to think about so um we've got our diagnosis we've he's met the duke's criteria and we need to start treatment how would we start treatment so you need to cover for those bugs um that you described so strep viridans staph aureus um or coagulase negative staph if you are um, a patient with a prosthetic heart valve um, it's going to be a combination of antibiotics yeah. um, uh, normally quite I mean I know the antibiotics regime is quite uh, taxing actually you know you're giving it for a minimum of four weeks yeah. uh, intravenous to begin with um, for certainly the majority of that uh, and it's normally two agents um, from my memory so you, vancomycin, gentamicin, um, plus or minus benzopenicillin, flucoxacillin. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, I mean, I think always check in your local hospital because um, they may have a different guideline. They may have different, um, you know, different areas have incidences of different bugs compared to others. But um, you're right, usually it's penicillin um, or moxicillin plus or minus gentamicin. If you're allergic, it's vancomycin. Um, and then if it's staph, they tend to use flucloxacillin. Uh, some, if they're allergic, cotrimoxazole, clindamycin are all options. The European Society of Cardiology guidelines say that before you get your cultures and sensitivity, then you use ampicillin, 
flucloxacillin and gentamicin or vancomycin and gentamicin if you're allergic. Again, always check with the microbiologist and always check with your local guidelines because it may differ. And check the kidney function because yeah, if, yes. if their AKI is quite and severe, his function was bad. you might need to just tweak the doses yeah. slightly. One big issue we had in this guy was because he'd been an intravenous drug user for a very long time was IV access. It was, it was tricky. So um, we did have to utilise um, the skills of anaesthetics on, on occasions to try and get ultrasound-guided lines in. Um, because of his agitation, he did pull them out on occasions um, or they, they just weren't effective, they didn't work. So that was another trick, the difficulties, I should say, in this case. Yeah, um, is actually getting good IV access, and I suppose also you're, you're thinking about if if you're lucky enough to get some central access, but then in someone who's got you know septic emboli floating around their system, you've obviously just got to be extra cautious about your line uh, care. Definitely, there's it was a very yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it was it was complicated, yeah, and um, on top of that. Um, there are complications of endocarditis itself. So you need to, you know, monitor the heart, like you said, make sure he doesn't have any heart failure, um, make sure he doesn't have any aneurysms like you mentioned, or mycotic um, aneurysms where you get an aneurysm or an emboli with infection. Um, ischemic strokes are also a possibility as well because you can get emboli from them. Um, may have a TIA. Meningitis is a possibility. Encephalopathy splenic infarctions again are quite they can happen um and conduction abnormalities so particularly if the infection affects the atrial ventricular node you can get prolongation of the pr interval on the ecg so it's 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 all things like that to look out for the um european society of cardiology do suggest that um you should have an endocarditis team right I've never heard of one of these before. It's definitely not something that they've had in, in, our hospital, in the hospital I've worked at. But this is where they have shown that the um, recovery from endocarditis is much improved if you have a team dedicated towards the management of endocarditis. So these are specialists who treat it on a regular basis, so not just infrequently. Yeah. So there may be some hospitals out there that have them. I mean, I, I haven't worked in any of you. No, it's an interesting sub sub specialty I suppose to yeah. keep an eye out for yeah um also always remember they can present with rheumatological conditions as well so they may have arthralgia arthritis osteomyelitis vasculitic rashes that's another differential of somebody who's got um sort of the classic endocarditis vasculitic rash um we've talked about investigations that we do we've talked about um how we manage them um there are a few more investigations that they do comment on in the guidelines, and that includes checking rheumatoid factor, checking ESR, checking complement, which can be suppressed in somebody with infective endocarditis, and um, do an MRI for the cerebral complications, which you brought up earlier, which is good. Um, and management-wise, the key thing that I think we need to think about is those. some of them do require surgery. So, um, and a lot of patients who do have endocarditis do end up having some form of surgery. Um, and that's normally if they've got overwhelming sepsis that hasn't responded to antibiotics. In pregnancy, they're more common. If the abscess is a perivalvular, if their valve is perforated, if it's a prosthetic valve and has stopped working, 
Um, if it's fungal, they may often need surgery. Um, and obviously this is where the specialist input comes in and um, sort of completely out of my... Yeah, I, I suppose, um, I mean, I've, I've worked in places where we had cardiology very easy to get a hold of mm. and then other places, you know, kind of that remote DGH where, you know, maybe things aren't as widely available. But I've, I've found in my very limited experience that early involvement of that cardiac MDT um, is crucial um not not just to get that final decision making but also just to flag up these patients that look they've got something that potentially is going to need surgical intervention yes absolutely and with our case um he did deteriorate um he needed his oxygen requirements increased to the level that we were unable to maintain his oxygen level so eventually he did go to the intensive care unit eight days after he was admitted to hospital with overwhelming sepsis, with endocarditis, with multiple things that were going on. And I went to see him quite frequently because I felt quite attached to this patient. I'd spent a lot of time with him and he was, as, as you can see, it was quite complicated. And sadly, um, he passed away um, from the sepsis from I think just generally being very very sick very poor physiological reserves probably even prior to becoming unwell um and it was a very very um sad case because this gentleman died in the intensive care unit still under um still in prison in effect and even when he was intubated and ventilated he still had um prison guards with him throughout um, he 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 didn't have his he wasn't handcuffed anymore, but it I don't know it just made me think about dignity and dying and it raised a lot of issues. It seemed really. a bit unnecessary to have him under arrest when he's clearly yeah. It was hard, but I mean you can understand their perspective as well. Yeah. Um, but it was the first time that's ever happened to me, so it was something that certainly yeah. will stay with me. Yeah, I think it's it's something that we don't really get trained in, you know, what happens when you're faced with the most challenging of personal circumstances with a patient, which is normally, yet yeah, are they either incarcerated or is there some horrific, you know, abuse thing that, that sometimes, again, you, you can't train for it at med school, you can't train for it yeah. as a, yeah. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, I, I can certainly appreciate how challenging that was. And, and actually you, that thing you said about him saying to you, I feel like I'm dying you feeling exactly the same way but you how do you where do you go from there you you both you you both know what's happening um, he knew yeah it was and, really strange he said it from the moment he came into any that day he was going to die and yeah would would you know follow protocol and did all these complex investigations that that we've just talked about and yet to know where the end point is sometimes it's staring you right in the face mm-hmm. It was very difficult. So it was a hard case for the for the medical reasons, which is complicated, but it was hard from a personal perspective as well yeah. um, because, of, as we've just described. So there's lots of learning points. Yeah, and it, I think this is a really good example of, of the kind of stereotypical presentation of endocarditis. Yeah. It affects people who are, at, who are the most vulnerable um, and who probably have the most... Uh, sort of significant background history like IVDU, mm-hmm. like alcoholism. 
Yeah. Mm, absolutely. And yeah, definitely take a lot away from that case. I hope you have taken something away from it too. Yes. No, thank, thank you for bringing that case. There's, there's a lot of food for thought. Yeah. Um, it was nice to go through the kind of the refresher of Duke's criteria. Um, but also just when you've gone through all the clinical signs like this this is a proper medical case there's yes it was it affects every single organ from skin to brain to kidney to lungs to heart um and it yeah it was very useful to go through those things so um thank you i mean there's a lot more about endocarditis that you can read about and look at um but i mean i think if we went it would take a very long amount of time um there is it's worth just going away and doing some reading about sort of um endocarditis mimics um, which I think we probably do see quite a lot of in, in clinical medicine, such as um, rheumatic fevers, atrial myxomas, um, and non-bacterial, bacteri- non-bacterial infective endocarditis, non-bacterial endocarditis, which I've also seen a case actually, where a patient has the same vegetations, but the vegetation is sterile, and it's often due to an underlying malignancy. So that was also something to keep, be aware of. Thank you for listening to the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email us at podcast at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at rcplondon. And we look forward to hearing from you. Goodbye.